Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, my name's Toby Young and I'm one of Quillette's London-based editors. A year ago, I spoke to Douglas Murray on the publication of his book, The Madness of Crowds, which sought to explain the resurgence of identity politics, particularly in the Anglosphere. And he has kindly agreed to speak to me again to coincide with the publication of the paperback. Douglas, welcome to the Quillette podcast. Very nice to be back. In the new afterword to the book, you begin on a fairly optimistic note, saying that the book's reception was more courteous than you'd expected it to be. Um, you didn't suddenly find yourself cancelled. Uh, but you end on a pretty gloomy note, saying that your hopes have been dashed and we now appear to be rushing headlong into a, an identitarian dystopia. What happened in the past year to to change your mind about that? What hasn't happened in the last year? <laughs> when we were gathered last year, if one of us had said to the other that we'd spend much of 2020 locked in our houses at the insistence of the Conservative majority government and that uh, anyone who was young and not in a committed relationship would be f- forced into celibacy by Boris Johnson, you might have wondered what the <laughs> circumstances were. So a lot has happened since we last spoke. My own view is that the overreach started to happen and it started to become most clearly felt at the beginning of the COVID crisis. When, as I say in the new chapter, the uh, feeling that many of us had was, if we're all going to have real problems, then we'll probably have less time for people with made-up ones. That is, it was hard to much care what Sam Smith's pronouns were if we were all going to lose a significant chunk of our family and friends. Or, which is now the best-case scenario, a lot of us are going to, in fact, all of us are going to have a very uncertain financial future. We're all going to be a lot poorer. We're all going to have worse living standards than we had before and much more. So that was the, as it were, the point of optimism in a way. It doesn't sound wildly optimistic, but it's that's where the whole movement of identity politics might have been expected to overreach. And then George Floyd happened. And instead it was reached for as the most important holy principle of our time, particularly, obviously, because I address these, as you know, one by one, sexuality, relations between the sexes and race, particularly, obviously, with the case of race. All of the things I write about have contributed to the current moment, but obviously the racial element is the one that has turned bloodiest, fastest. Why do you think that the murder, if it was murder, of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, provoked a global protest movement um, in which people didn't differentiate Mm -hmm. between their own police forces and criminal justice systems and that of America's? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can kind of argue the toss about whether in fact the American criminal justice system and the American police are systemically racist. 
But it's harder to make that argument about the British police, particularly in the wake of yes. the Stephen Lawrence report. Yes. And all the efforts the British police have made to kind of make themselves unracist. Um, harder to make the argument about the Swedish criminal mm. justice system, about the Belgian criminal mm. justice system. But nonetheless, it was as though every country's progressive identitarians mm. treated their own country as if it was indistinguishable, morally yes. indistinguishable. It was as though we ourselves mm. had fought a civil war and were encumbered by this toxic legacy of slavery. Yeah. And people were sort of looking for ways mm. to kind of sort of rationalise that view. It was a concatenation of events, wasn't it? The first is obviously lockdown had a lot to do with it. We were waiting for something to allow us to break lockdown. And the Black Lives Matter was a very good reason for a lot of people. Uh, it turned out there was one thing even more important than the public health, and that was anti-racism, what people thought of as anti-racism. I think you're right, it's all got tied up with each other. The first explanation for that is the simple dominance of American culture in all of the world, and that has good aspects and bad aspects. Uh, the overwhelming power of American culture has included the seeping into every culture, not just of the same music or the same films, but the same ideas about society, the, the perception that America's racial problems, which are undeniable and very specific, are the same as a Britain's or Australia's, or as you say. Why was there looting in the luxury stores in Stockholm in the name of Black Lives Matter? Uh, why were the Belgian police being assailed? In Britain, as you know, people pointed to the fact that I think three people were shot last year by the British police, and uh, one of them was the London Bridge terrorist. Very hard to feel any sympathy for. I'm very glad he got shot. We should all be gladder when the police are successful like that. But even that was sort of held as if, you know, the police do go around, or, you know, this was just an innocent wannabe suicide bomber. How dare you not detain him in a more peaceful manner? The protesters in London were chanting, hands up, don't shoot. Yes. And it's, I was like, it's quite difficult for the British police to do, since they don't carry guns. Yes, exactly. I, I make that crack in the matters of crowds. You know, I saw the first Black Lives Matter in London some years ago. And there they were doing hands up, don't shoot, all accompanied by unarmed British police officers for their own safety. By the way, that brings us to that, the, the, the enormous capability with a combination of the isolation we've all been forced to endure this year and this inability to feel what the public mood really is. You know, we've lost our societal receptors. And so, you know, everyone starts taking the knee and then everyone starts being forced to raise a fist. And mm -hmm. then what, what do you want us to dance to next? Mm -hmm. So all that's undeniably been going on. But just to get back to this issue of why it's been the same everywhere. We also have to recognize that a distinction exists along this, which includes deeply dishonest actors, anarchists and others who want always to seize any opportunity to do evil. And they go all the way to sincere, decent people who think that the American police are allowed to kill black people with basically absolute equanimity. And this is false. Uh, this is this is not a fair estimation of the American police, but that claim extends into the claim that not only the police in America must be systemically racist, but that America is systemically racist, and that therefore all white people are systemically racist. And now you get to the state we're currently in, 
which is not sustainable. It's utterly unsustainable. And I'll tell you why in a nutshell. Um, black Americans constitute something like 13% of the US population. White people remain a majority. I hate, by the way, talking in these terms like you. I don't want to start talking about who's white, who's black. What I hoped that this would be, as Sam Harris said, as unimportant as hair color by now. But here we are, thanks to the anti-racists. So the majority of people in America are white. I submit that the majority populations will not put up with being told that they are hateful, racist, have nothing good in their past, nothing good in their present, and must live their lives as cringing fools. Same thing in the UK. Here, the black population is a relatively small number in the population. I submit that they will not be able to persuade the majority of the population for much longer that we have nothing good in our past, nothing good in our present, and have to be cringing little sort of minion figures for the rest of our lives. I don't see it happening. They are Get it, they are already at the point of massive overreach. Bad actors have pushed them that way. Malevolent lecturers and others have encouraged this. And I think they are massively overreaching and they're leading us all into hell. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But, like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. One thing that has really surprised me um, about the many successes of the BLM movement is that it's been extraordinarily easy to persuade very intelligent, highly educated, generally people of good faith running institutions mm. like universities, drama Why colleges, are they good faith? museums. Well, we could argue about that. But when they say um, our institution has been complicit with 
the system of white supremacy mm. and we need to do the work. I mean, it's, it's odd. It's as though all these statements that they make have been written by a single person. Yeah. And I often, I had this idea actually that you could get the plagiarism software mm. that detects plagiarism in undergraduate essays and just run the statements made by various presidents and vice chancellors of universities through that program. Mm. And they'd all look as though they were plagiarizing one another because they all use exactly mm. the same phrases and the same words when they make these kind of statements of solidarity with BLM and talk about their complicity um, with the system of white supremacy. My theory is to, is to, and I'm assuming that when they say this, they believe it. They're not just paying lip service. They don't just think well, it's let, kind let, of virtue that. that they are obliged to signal. That, that's obviously part of what's going on. But I also think that at a certain level, it's sincere. And I think the link between that and the COVID pandemic is that people conventionally have thought of people on the right have um, uh, an overdeveloped disgust instinct and that they're very sensitive mm. to contamination, which is why they're anti-immigration, why they're squeamish about uh, homosexuals. Conservatism is supposedly rooted in this kind of um, anally retentive, kind of over-fastidious mm. kind of psychological kind of defect. Um, that's been a theory in mm. social psychology, but sure. never replicated properly. And the evidence for it's pretty mm. threadbare. But actually, it seems to me that that's a plausible theory about progressive identitarians. Mm. And that when they cancel people, when they talk about people being, you know, Jordan Peterson being Islamophobic adjacent, that somehow by standing next to someone wearing a I'm a proud Islamophobe T-shirt, he can somehow become contaminated just because he's in, in the same kind of room. I don't believe that. Person, I don't a few believe that. But, but, but you can see that there's a sort of disgust instinct at work there. No. A, a desire to purify their moral no. community by pushing out the pathogens. No. And that seems to me that that's been brought out, teased out by the pandemic amongst the kind of the progressive kind of elites. No. And that what they're saying when they try and kind of cleanse their institutions of the kind of stain of white supremacy is that they're trying to kind of morally purify themselves and push out the contaminants because they've been oversensitized to contamination by the pandemic. It's their way of putting on their mask by saying, I'm going to get rid of the, the kind of white supremacists in my institution. Of course, they aren't really there, but you know. Right. No. Disagree with all of that. First, they just want to win. They just want to win. They don't think Jordan Peterson is a so-called Islamophobe because he once stood beside somebody who had a T-shirt that said, I'm a proud Islamophobe. They don't think that for a nanosecond. They wanted him out. But how can they persuade other people to think that? Even Because if they lie what, what, and they're dishonest <laughs> and they're willing to do things that you and I are not willing to do. I could do this to all of them and we should seriously start to reflect morally and strategically on whether it's worth doing. I can say that there has been tolerance of paedophilia at Cambridge University for years and that everybody who has had paedophilia toleration adjacency must be expunged from the university. And they could say, Douglas, could you identify those people? And I could say, oh, yes, I'd love to do that job. I would love to start pointing fingers and taking people out. Now, why don't we do that? One reason is you and I know I might not be able to resist just taking out ideological enemies. I might not be able to resist just taking out people who I had a grudge against for other purposes, because that's why revolutions always go wrong, just as this one will go wrong, because you can't 
stop people doing that. They didn't want Jordan Peterson. They used the croc reason. They didn't want other figures in their university, so they got rid of them. They do want one racist professor at Churchill College who is a racist, but she happens to be racist against white people, so it's okay. So they don't have a moratorium on racism at all, at all. They love having a racist so long as it's that person with the correct views or rather the correct identity. So it's totally flat out wrong that they are being honest. The second thing is that the people you're talking about who might be honest actors are cowards. They're cowards. And the problem we have in our societies is that our societies have become cowardly. Let me give you one example. Why do we use the phrase silent majority? Why the hell is the majority silent? Why should it be silent? What has it to be silent about? Why doesn't it speak? We've all instituted the idea that even majorities should be silent if they have views that may cause a certain amount of trouble with an incredibly small, ideologically driven, hard-line extremist faction that has far too much power, in fact, an enormous amount of power, that is totally at odds with the number of people who practice it. So, going back to your issue with institutions, yes, there are some ideologically driven maniacs. There are then some totally dishonest actors, and then there are the cowards. You've written in the past, Toby, about woke capitalism. You and I know. What are the heads of various investment funds and banks and city law firms and energy companies? What, you, you think that they really believe in any of this stuff when they institute compulsory diversity training and much more? No, of course they don't. They're cowards. And what they want, furthermore, is the mob to pass them by so they pay the price. It's the cheapest price they could pay to make the mob pass by their front door and attack something else. I concede that the loudest voices, the ideological leaders of this movement, are for the most part either fanatics or bad actors. But one of the reasons they manage to enjoy such success is because there is an army of other people out there, also in fairly influential positions, who, for completely sincere reasons, believe that these other folks have a moral case. They have a persuasive moral argument. The armies they enlist to fight their battles for them, it would be wrong to describe them as useful idiots. They're useful PhDs, useful mm. postdocs. I mean, you know, all the faculty members at Princeton who signed the letter, which, among other things, proposed the creation of a kind of thought police who would monitor, you know, other faculty members <laughs> to see if they were expressing mm. sufficient fealty to the BLM calls and, mm. you know, prostrating themselves at sufficient intervals and so forth. They weren't idiots. They were members of the faculty. This is something that um, Yoram Hazoni talked about in mm. a recent essay he did for Quillette. He said that in order to defeat this movement, in order to stop it before it does engulf us in this 
identitarian dystopia or worse, some kind of ongoing inconclusive civil war, um, which seems to be breaking out on the streets of America. We have to acknowledge the moral force of Marxism, that when it, when it talks about things like false consciousness and when it looks at the kind of underlying power dynamics sitting below rhetoric about individual rights and justice, they, they are getting at something. And when they point to grotesque inequalities, that does strike a chord hmm. uh, with, yes. with vast numbers of people. There is, there is a kind of terrible truth that kind of sits alongside all the lies. The world is full of terrible truths, and none of them have Marxism as the answer. The problem is soggy-mindedness in high places. Let's take the first part of the problem. Sincere enough people who've had the world misrepresented to them throughout their lives. I'm thinking particularly of students. If you've been told throughout all your life that America is a racist society, it is quite likely that you will believe that it is. And you will believe that the KKK is terribly close to power. And that uh, Jim Crow is sort of only just a couple of years ago, maybe, but going to come back. Okay, That's what happens if you've been badly informed throughout your life by malevolent actors. And I do know the fact that there are lots of young people who, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the death of George Floyd, have decided that America is to be understood in just that light. They believe that America is a racist country that has a racist past and uh, is basically irredeemable, unless we follow the Marxist path, which has led to so many happy occasions before. Um, the second thing, though, is that the adults left the room a long time ago, maybe two generations ago. For two generations, American students have been taught to hate their country. And the Marxists and others that took advantage of this did so because, of course, you sometimes are onto something. For instance, the world is a very unequal place. The right tends not to be great at addressing the most grotesque inequalities because it tends to say, well, the market. There are lots of answers to the inequality discussion, as you know, but none of them have been offered up. And so people are persuaded that an unequal society must be an, an unfair society, must be an evil society. and so. But we're not really talking about inequality in this era. We're talking about race and alleged racism or racialism, as it was called in the past. And... On that, I'm afraid that the people who should be adults have entirely lost the ability to say anything that puts anything in perspective. For instance, every single civilization in history had slavery. Every single one. What distinguishes Britain? That we led the world in getting rid of slavery and that we financially crippled ourselves in that effort. What distinguishes America? Fought a civil war on this question. What distinguishes various societies in Africa at the moment? That they're still doing it. What distinguishes the Gulf states? That they're still doing it. They don't call it slavery, but what do you think the Far Eastern workers who work and built 
Doha and Dubai in recent years are. What distinguishes Turkey that it kept it going as long as possible? So, we're not dealing with honest actors and we're not dealing with an honest interpretation of history anymore. We're dealing with highly malevolent political actors who use the past for their own immediate political ends. And again, I stress, if you want to start playing that game, there are other people who will play it back. We don't have to go back very long to find the Turkish Empire massacring half a million Anatolian Greeks and chasing the rest from their lands, let alone the murder of a million Armenians. The breakup of the Ottoman Empire was as bad as any. When do we start seeing Turkey portrayed in this proper light in that case? And I come back to this point. I am very happy to hear critiques of my own society. And I've, I've done them at book length. I'm not interested in some weird rose-tinted analysis of my own country's past. But nor am I interested in ideologically motivated actors looking at my country in the most negative possible light and using it against me and my society now. And I submit that most British people, like most American people, are not up for that either. So there comes the crunch. Do you want to be a coward in front of the mob or do you not? Because the mob will come for you. And the question is, do you dance to its tune? Do you take the knee? pretending that it's some ancient custom, which we've always done it, do you not know? Uh, raise your fist, because we've always done it, because it's completely normal for people to walk into restaurants in Washington, D.C. and demand that other diners raise a fist. Can I just return quickly again to this point of cowardice? If you sit at a restaurant in D.C. or in London and a beggar comes along with an accordion and plays outside the restaurant to the people eating and disturbs their meal, the restaurant staff will move the person away. But if a mob comes and assaults the customers, no one dares stop them. That's not normal. That is profoundly abnormal. This is cowardice on a culture-wide scale. And I predict that the overreach that we are currently going through will stop. And it could stop decently, or it could stop in the most indecent fashion imaginable. And now a message from our commercial supporters at Hydrant, whose refreshing drink mixes hydrate you quickly. One of the best parts of a Quillette job is getting sample packs from our advertisers. I've tried Hydrant and I like it. My favorite flavor is grapefruit, by the way, though the new flavors, iced tea lemonade and fruit punch, are also great. But a more important stamp of approval comes from our managing editor, Colin Wright, who, as Instagram followers will know, is a kind of fitness nut. He tells me that Hydrant is a great alternative to overly sweet hydration mixes. The flavors don't taste artificial, which isn't surprising since they're flavored with real fruit juice powder. Each Hydrant Rapid Hydration Mix has the four electrolytes your body needs. 
sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. There's also a separate product called Hydrant Plus Caffeine that adds in 100 milligrams of caffeine from green tea. Hydrant was developed by an Oxford University scientist, and it's become a staple of pro athletes, celebrities, and, as you can see on the website, plenty of ordinary folks who've given it five-star reviews. Hydrant starts at just a dollar per packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. Plus, we've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash quillette or enter our promo code quillette at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash quillette, Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, and enter promo code quillette for 25% off your first order. Thanks to Hydrant for their support. And now, back to our podcast. One of the points you make in the afterword is that the success of identitarian political ideologues is partly because everyone agrees on the objective Mm. of equality of opportunity between different identity groups. Everyone agrees that people shouldn't be discriminated against, prevented from getting a job or getting promoted on the basis of their skin colour, their sexual orientation, their gender and so forth. Mm. But the difficulty we have is that they've somehow managed to harness these widely shared objectives to this kind of refreshed Marxism. Um, And they've got this quite well-developed articulated theory, which James Lindsay and Helen Plutko is right about, critical race theory. Mm. And you say in the afterword that we who oppose this and see the direction in which it's going and how ghastly and terrible that's likely to be for all of us, if we're going to succeed, if we're going to stop them, we need an alternative, equally seductive, attractive, theoretical framework. We need our own version of critical race theory Mm. to harness these common goals too. Why haven't we made more progress in that regard? Well, I don't think we need our own theory. I think we need antidotes to the poison, which is one of the things I try to help give people. The social justice activists have injected a poison into our society and we need to get the antidotes into our system fast and identifying the nature of the poison is the first part of that task. That's what Pluckrose and Lindsay and others have done a great job in helping to do. Try to work out what the toxins are that have been pumped into your system and how it happened. My own view is that you don't need to create a new theory. There are a set of options that Western societies now have in front of us. And it'll be interesting to see which of them we go towards. I have my own preferences, prejudices, you might like to say, about where we should go. I think there's a very big strain going on for those who believe in the Enlightenment ideal, which I'm fond of, but I'm not a Pinker-esque disciple of. I think it's part of a solution. I don't think it's a totalistic one. I think that the Enlightenment troop have got a problem at the moment. And they are starting to worry, I suspect, that it doesn't work. Which some of us could have suggested earlier. 
There is a second set of answers which has a lot of potential avenues, but I would say they all cohere around something like an attempt to return to tradition. Um, so, for instance, you don't get involved in metaphysical debate, but you just say these are our metaphysical systems and we use them because they've been useful to us in the past and we think they'll continue to be so. Now, a philosopher may well take exception to that, but on a practical level, that's very reasonable. And to make to put that in more layman terms, I mean, there's no reason why a society can't say, actually, we've always done things this way and we'd like to keep doing them that way. And actually, we will keep doing them that way. And you see that in certain societies in Central and Eastern Europe um, and among other places at the moment. It's a clear, clear, a clear rebellion against the perception of what the Enlightenment ideal may have ended to. You may call it what the liberal ideal has ended up with. But I'm not particularly dogmatic on this. I think that people should use whatever they think will work for them and their society, and it will differ from society to society. I think that America has a particular problem, and what they are in at the moment is the beginning of a civil war. And that's not just because of the actions that are going on every single night on the streets of major American cities, but because there is, as I wrote in The Spectator recently, now a fundamental disagreement about the nature of the founding of the state. And that is how you have a civil war. Uh, if a portion of the country does not believe that the country was founded when it was, but was founded 150 years earlier when slaves first were brought in, if a half the country believes the constitution should be rewritten, the polls show, for instance, one reason it said 70% of self-described liberals said they want the constitution to be rewritten. If you, if you think the constitution should be rewritten, you were founded in slavery, you were evil at the start, the founding fathers were terrible, and much more, you're, you don't have a state. You don't have a state. You, and you don't agree with your fellow citizen. And the whole premise is blown wide open. And those people, I think, are in the ascendancy at the moment. Whether they continue to be is another matter. But uh, other parts of America will say, no, we have the founding fathers. We revere them. We admire them. We revere the Constitution. We, ad we ad adhere to the Constitution. And we will continue to do so because it has worked up till now and we believe it will work in the future. That's a totally respectable argument to make. It does not require a degree in anything. It doesn't require a PhD in anything doesn't require you to get into debt in any way at all. And I suspect that a lot of America will do that. Biden or Trump? My diagnosis at the moment is that maybe neither of them is going to win, which is why it's the worst possible combination of events. Because in 2000, we had one, uh, well, we had Florida, contested. I think it's very likely that we'll have um, several states contested on multiple grounds, including Minnesota, India, mail ballots. And I think that is about the worst situation, isn't it? Uh, so wh whoever wins, it's the most important thing is that it's a clear victory. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's going to be. And I would have thought, by the way, if we'd spoken only two or three months ago, I'd have said it's a goner for Trump. Mm -hmm. Can't possibly win it now. Mm -hmm. 
And now I think it's highly likely that he wins. Highly likely. And if he does, then Black Lives Matter can thank themselves because of their overreach. And the rioters and the looters and the protesters can thank themselves and congratulate themselves. And all of the governors and Democrat politicians who stood by and thought that the burning of shops was a tolerable phase to go through in order to arrive at social justice will have themselves to thank for giving America another four years of Donald J. Trump. What message can we send to people listening to this who feel vulnerable, isolated in their institutions, fearful that the mob will, as you say, come for them? We've had some success here with the Free Speech Union, which we're both involved in. Um, and I want to start other branches mm. in the United States and elsewhere. But there do seem to be kind of other organic movements to create union-like institutions mm. that can band together and protect people from the mobs. Do you think that is one solution? Yeah. Obviously, it's one solution. But the main thing is a deeper and wider thing. You cannot be the silent majority anymore. The silent majority has to speak. You cannot be intimidated a day longer. This is not a time for cowardice. It's a time for the most minuscule imaginable act of bravery. I don't deny how much that costs some people, but it costs nothing on historical terms. Every single generation before this one had a far bigger sacrifice to make than we have now. We don't have to kill anyone. We don't have to be killed. We don't have to sacrifice members of our family. We just need to speak. That's the easiest damn thing in the whole of human history, and this generation is failing at it. So I suggest that it finds its voice, and it finds it today, and that every single person listening realises it's time to speak. Douglas Murray, thank you very much for... Speaking to Quillette, it's a great pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.